Desperate times require desperate measures. You've heard that phrase before. But there's a little book sort of snuggled among the others in the Old Testament where this phrase is particularly appropriate. It's the book in which the reading was just delivered, the book of Ruth. The book begins, you may have noticed, with these words, it was in the days of the judges. Just that phrase, that phrase alone tells you something. They were not good days. We've been talking about the judges over the last few weeks and months. They were days of tumult and upheaval. You could never be sure whether or not things were going to be okay. As a matter of fact, frequently, God was allowing the enemies to oppress his people. It was in the days of the judges that Elimelech, a man from Israel, decided that desperate times required desperate measures. So he left Israel and he went to Moab because he thought he could make a living there. The famine was great in Israel. He took with him Naomi and two sons. And while there, Elimelech died and both his sons died after they'd been married to Moabite women. And Naomi is left. Desperate times require desperate measures. Naomi is left with nothing. Literally nothing. Because she's a widow. Now widowhood is not what anyone would wish for. But nowadays to be a widow, as difficult as it may be, is not as serious as it was then. My mother is a widow. She has no worries. Oh, she has a few. But she has three sons, and she's going to be just fine. The situation with Ruth was much more desperate. Her sons were gone. Her husband was gone. Her livelihood was gone. Her identity, as it were, had completely vanished. To be a woman in this culture meant to be poor. It meant to be destitute. It meant to be in very grave situations. As a matter of fact, the root word for widow in the Hebrew language comes from a word that means unable to speak. Wow, does that speak volumes. Not even having a voice. That was where Naomi was. No male protector, which was absolutely essential, essential in that culture. No legal voice. She was open to excessive abuse. And frequently, that was the lot of a woman whose husband passed away. There's a wonderful book about this book of Ruth. The title of the book is The Gospel of Ruth. Curious title, written by a woman, especially for women. And by the way, I would recommend it highly to anyone, but especially women. It's a profound book. Carolyn Curtis James is the name of the author, and she helps you understand the situation that Naomi was in. 
In one of those situations, she describes widowhood uh, as this, what I've just described, and also uses a modern-day illustration of what it meant back then and in this situation now to be a widow. In India, there is a very sacred city that is not known for being sacred because of this, but the sacred city has a sub-name, subtitle. The subtitle of that sacred city is City of Widows. The City of Widows is littered with women who were once married, whose husbands are dead, and they're destitute and poor. And it is their life to go around the city and to beg for anything, and to pray out loud, and to mourn. On one occasion, um, Carolyn Curtis James describes a visit to this city, talking to some of the widows, one in particular, who'd been widowed for 40 years and living this life. There's a tradition in India, or used to be a tradition in India, that when your husband died, you could throw yourself onto the burning pyre where your husband was consumed to die with him. The practice is illegal now, or supposedly. One of these women that the story is about, when describing her situation, said, I think that practice would be a blessing. That's the kind of condition that Naomi found herself in. So desperate times require desperate measures. And what's her desperate measure? As a single woman, unprotected, she's going to make a lengthy journey, which was dangerous enough. Even if you had a whole family, a lengthy journey back to Israel. Imagine the fear that drove her to overcome her fear to return. She's determined to return, and it seems that both her uh, children by marriage are going to return with her, both her daughter-in-laws. Orpah and Ruth say, we'll go. Of course, at the end of the day, we know that Ruth is the only one who does go, but she and Ruth decide to take this very dangerous journey. When they arrive, the story that you heard read doesn't include this, but the rest of the book of Ruth tells this story. When they arrive, Naomi and Ruth settle in, and Ruth, being the younger one, immediately becomes busy with the activity that she knows she can do, which is a limited activity. It's to glean from the fields of the harvesters to go along behind and beside those who are harvesting the field and pick up the scraps, gather them in a basket, and bring them back. That's what the poor did. That's what the destitute did. That's what people did who had no hope. So Ruth immediately busies herself in that activity, uh, accepting her life with Ruth, with her uh, mother-in-law Naomi, and she uh, begins this life together with them. As she's working on one particular day, she's noticed by the owner of the field, Boaz. Uh, Ruth is a very industrious woman. She works from dawn till dusk, and he notices her. 
And he says to his workers, you see that woman over there? I want you to give her special treatment and care. Make sure you leave behind some things. Hmm? Maybe a little more than usual. Instead of gleaning for me perfectly, drop a few. And let her pick them up. And don't shame her in any way. Don't give her a hard time. Let her pick up as much as she can. Ruth uh, knows about this or hears about it and takes the word back home to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And she reports this incredible blessing of this wonderful man who's been so kind to her. And Naomi says, oh, yes, let me tell you something, Ruth. He's our kinsman redeemer. That is, he's the person in line who could redeem the property of my dead husband for us by marrying you. So, my daughter, let's come up with a plan. Don't you love it? I mean, this is matchmaking at its best. And I'm telling you, Boaz was no match for this woman, Naomi. She says, Ruth, here's the plan. You go back. It must have been seven weeks from the time she told her this, best we can tell. You go back, and when the threshing floor is ripe, when they've brought it all in, when they're taking their harvest in on the threshing floor, the threshing floor where only the men are, I want you to wait until they're done. And I want you to slip in. And I want you to go up to Boaz while he sleeps and pull back the cover that he has over him, uncovering his feet. And then wait and see what happens. Ruth says, I'll do whatever you say. So she goes to the threshing floor. I can imagine, though I don't know the details because they're not in the text, that she's hanging out. She's watching. She's listening. And the men who are doing the threshing on the threshing floor are happy. It's a joyous time. The harvest has been brought in. They're delighted, especially the owner, Boaz. Remember, now God is blessing the people in Israel. The harvest is there. There's lots of joviality. They are eating and drinking and probably dancing and singing. And after all that, they're exhausted, probably by good wine and food. And they fall fast asleep on the threshing floor. I like to think that Ruth is just hanging out back there, waiting for the whole thing to wind down. Everybody's got to sleep, she says. I'll just wait. And she slips into the threshing floor and does exactly what Naomi tells her to do, uncovers his feet, and somewhere in the middle of the night, the text says, Boaz was startled. Something startled him. What we know is that the men routinely slept at the threshing floor because they were trying to make sure that thieves didn't come in and take the harvest. So he was startled, and he wakes up, and then he's even more startled because there's a woman lying at his feet. It's Ruth. This is a man of a high reputation, and this is a potential situation of disrepute. What's a woman doing in the threshing floor, laying by your feet? Ruth notices that he's awake. He notices that Ruth is there. 
And so it's her opportunity. She says to him, sir, will you take your blanket in effect? The blanket in effect that I've uncovered your feet with, will you take it and place it over me? Will you take me to yourself? After all, you know, you're my kinsman redeemer. It's a wonderful story because Ruth initiates everything. Everything. The woman I referred to uh, who wrote the Gospel of Ruth, Carolyn Curtis James, recalls a time where she was listening to a BBC broadcast while living in England and cleaning the flat of uh, her family there. And the BBC broadcast was a reader who was reading a book about an incident that took place, fiction or not, I do not know, where a young woman and a young man were pledged to be married, and it came right up to the day of the marriage. It was just around the corner. She was delighted and ready for marriage, and the young man came to her, shaking in his boots, cold feet to the max, and said, my dear, I just can't. I just can't. I love you, but I can't take the next step. She was devastated, of course, as the author writes, but she said to him, well, I understand, but let's do it this way. To save you the disgrace, let's go through with the wedding. You be up there, and I just won't show up. And then I'll take the shame. This guy agreed to the plan. That's the amazing thing to me. What a snarly little character. He agrees to the plan. He goes to the church. He stands up front. He waits for the door to open. The music begins. The door opens. And in she walks on her father's arm. She walks right up to the front of the church. They go through the ceremony. They take the vows. They're happily married. And it's not till sometime during the honeymoon that they even discuss what happened. You know, he must have accepted the fact that he didn't have it. And she did. And she must have known him better than he knew himself. And she said, you're mine. You want to be mine. I'll be there. It may also be that she was introducing him to the fact that she was going to get the best of him more than once uh, during the marriage. Now, uh, Carolyn... Curtis James does not suggest directly that this is what happened with Ruth and Boaz. But let me be more bold. I think it is. I think that we have a man of outstanding character who's got his life well-ordered, who actually has noticed Ruth. It's not just a hard-working woman, remember, because he knows full well he's the kinsman redeemer. When she says, you're my kinsman redeemer, he says, ah, yes, that's true. 
But as a matter of fact, there's somebody else who's first in line. That means I'll have to negotiate with them in order to get you. He knew full well, and I'm just saying as a guy, okay, he didn't have the moxie to ask. So Ruth becomes the original Sadie Hawkins and walks into the threshing floor and says, you're mine. Now that's way outside the box, my friends. Desperate times require desperate measures. It's, um, it's a wonderful story because... Ruth and Boaz are married, and as the fairy tale says, live happily ever after. But you could reduce the whole story to a romance novel, and you wouldn't do it justice, I don't think, because I think like every story in the Bible, it's a story of faith. So what are the elements in the story of faith? Think for yourself and Study it yourself, but the ones I recognize and would like to share to you, share with you are these. In this story, faith is shaped by circumstances. Faith's not just this ethereal thing that's just hanging out here that you have or you don't. It's shaped by life. Naomi didn't create any of her circumstances. Arguably, her husband was foolish to leave Israel, to move to Moab, even though he thought it would work out, arguably, he was foolish. And it's beyond argument that whether foolish or not, his decision was her life. So she inherits this decision, her husband's, and the lot is now very difficult. Her decision to move back to Israel is a decision of faith, born out of desperation. And she faithfully waited when she left Israel for Moab, and when she left Moab for Israel, she faithfully waited for God to shape her in the circumstances. It didn't mean she was inactive. It just means that she resigned herself to the sovereignty of God and allowed her faith to be shaped by the circumstances. You know what I mean, right? I hope you do. I hope you're there. I hope you've said to God, these are my circumstances, Lord. Allow it to shape my faith. That's real faith. Second thing I noticed is this faith of Ruth and Naomi, it was an honest faith. I, I appreciate the honesty of Naomi in particular. It was read to you just a few moments ago. She said, my situation is desperate, and I'm going to name it for what it is. When she returned to Israel... And the women were excited to see her. She said, calm down. I want to say something. God has, well, he's been tough with me. Her words are these. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, 
because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Can, can I read that again? The Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Now, what I think is striking about that is not just those words, but it's what follow those words. Those are just honest words. It seems to me that God has cursed me, to put it another way. What follows those words is the faithful following of a God who has afflicted her. She does not allow the bitterness of life to become a bitterness in her soul. She says, life has dealt me a bitter blow. But in the midst of this life, I will have faith in that God. I have returned to my people. I will trust God in the midst of all circumstances, faithfully. So it's a faith that's shaped by circumstances. It's a faith that's honest without being bitter. It's also a faith that's unassuming. It's just not flamboyant. There's nothing flamboyant about Naomi or Ruth. They're quiet women who work within their assigned roles faithfully expecting that in the context of their faithful following God, he will care for them. And boy, does he. He sure does. You know, it was a faith that was um, shaped in circumstances. It was an honest faith, an unassuming faith. I think it was also a wise faith. I can't help but think of Jesus' words when I think of what is almost the conniving of Naomi and Ruth in this romantic story. The words of Jesus to his disciples on one occasion is, uh, do this for me, my friends. Be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Can you see the image? You know, a dog or a wolf may attack its prey by roaring before it ever gets there. It's not very sneaky or surreptitious. Uh, that, that's not the word, the analogy that Jesus uses. He says, I want you to be not wise like a dog. I want you to be wise like a serpent. One who just slithers around in the stuff that's there. Who assumes the context of his or her life. I want you to be wise like that. But unlike a serpent... I want you to be harmless as a dove. Ruth and Naomi depict the words of Jesus. They just step into their context and they just move along with such stealth. And then harmless as a dove, they seek out their opportunity and hope that God was in their plan. It's a wise faith that's demonstrated by these women. But finally, 
And actually, this goes to the title of my sermon. It was a faith that was shaped in community. From start to finish. Everything about it. Naomi and Ruth are not independent women who are out there with just them and their God. Everything about their life is grounded in community. Whether a Moabite community or an Israelite community. It's in the context of community faith that this is shaped. The circumstances of their community. As a matter of fact, Ruth recognizes this early on with those famous words to Naomi. When Naomi's about ready to leave, apparently she understands the God Yahweh that Naomi now serves. After all, she married Naomi's son. She understands this and she says, no, I'm going with you, Naomi. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. I'm making a communal choice, not just a me choice. You know, when I was growing up a um, long, long time ago and got married more than 30 years ago, there used to be a song that almost every wedding included. It was the song, Whither Thou Goest, I Will Go. You remember that? And the soloist always sang it in his best George Beverly Shea voice, you know, Whither Thou Goest, I Will Go. It, it was a wonderful moment. It was just wonderful. We, we hardly ever hear it anymore. Nobody that I've married has had that song sung. But it comes right out of this text. Ruth is saying to Naomi, I'm going with you. I'm identifying with you. I'm identifying with your people and your God. And in the context of that kind of communal life, my faith will be shaped. Uh, you just had to assume, as everybody did back then, that people had gods. And to move to a new people group meant to move to a new circle of influence that included their gods. You know our modern sensibilities? Well, they're almost offended by that idea because we think of faith as individualistic. Me and God, me and my Jesus. I so appreciate the personal nature of an individual faith. If I didn't, I wouldn't be a self-proclaimed, and by the way, I continue to hang on to the title in spite of the fact that it's frequently dismissed evangelical. I, I appreciate the personal nature of faith, the personal commitment that is emphasized about our faith. But on the other hand, that particular approach, really it's modified and extreme, I think, and in the process of modifying an extreme, it's created another extreme. Right? It's suggested that faith doesn't come from going to church with a group of people. It comes from faith in Jesus Christ. And I get that, and I say amen to it. But we've modified that extreme of just going to church and being a Christian because you show up with another extreme, which is church? 
Well, maybe I go, maybe I won't. Church, maybe it's important, maybe it's not. Community, great. It's a sort of like an icing on the cake. No, it's not icing on the cake. The community is the faith. And in the context of community, your faith is shaped. Um, John Stott, I'm running out of time. John Stott said this on one occasion, a very gracious scholar, and I've quoted him before this very quote, but I want to say it again, because if you know anything about John Stott, you can't believe it's coming out of his mouth, because it just seems kind of harsh. He says, I hope none of my readers, and one of the books he wrote, is that grotesque anomaly, ooh, grotesque anomaly, called an unchurched Christian. For the New Testament knows nothing of such a monster. Woo, John, take a breath, you know? A monster? No. We are not only committed to Christ, we're committed to the body of Christ. Indeed, we cannot be one without the other. That's a pretty strong statement. There's some way in which I agree. Oh, not to an extreme, but I agree. I can't be Christian alone. I can't be a Lone Ranger Christian. My faith is shaped, birthed, and given the birth of eternal life in community. Yeah, community is never perfect. But really, that's kind of the point. Because in community, deeply sinful people shape other deeply sinful people into the image of Jesus Christ. Maybe because we're not perfect. This community faith, it guards against individualistic error all the time. It does for me so often. This community faith, it's about commitment to a family, to a body of Christ, to people that in some of the older traditions used to call brother and sister all the time. It's a lost virtue commitment in our modern day world. That's what communal faith does. And oh, yes, just one last thing um, about community faith. Um, the result of community faith? It's just sometimes miraculous. Casting your lot with a community of Christ followers means that you enter into and participate in a story that's not only bigger than your life, it's bigger than human life. Because when Ruth entered the story, the end result is she became one of the great grandmothers of Jesus Christ. That's community faith, my friend. It's what all of us ought to be about. Are you involved? Where are you connected? There's opportunities everywhere.
since I'm standing here, there's lots of them at Evangelical Community Church. Open up the door of your heart. Be a part because you'll be transformed by the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the faith of Ruth and Naomi and even the faith of Boaz, though he doesn't seem to loom as large uh, in the category of faith. We thank you, Lord, that you uh, knit together the tapestry of our life in community as we follow you, and you create a story that we could never have anticipated, just like Ruth and Naomi could never have anticipated their return to Israel, their involvement in that community would place them in the direct lineage of Jesus Christ, the Son of God who redeems all who come to him. We thank you for their story. And in it, Lord, we pray that you will help us to find our story and that you will allow us to live faithfully, a community of faith that produces wonderful results for the kingdom of God. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.